right, church. If you'll turn to Luke chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 7 through 14 today. Luke chapter 3, verses 7 through 14. says this so he who began or so so he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves we have abraham for our father for i say to you that from these stones god is able to raise up children to abraham indeed the axe is already laid at the root of the trees So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force, or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we just come before your glorious throne today, Lord. We just approach you with reverence and humility, Lord, knowing who it is, God, that that You are in heaven, You are on Your throne, and we are here on earth. And so, Father, may our words be few. Father, we love You. We praise You, God. I just ask that You would help me, Lord, with the power of Your Holy Spirit today. Father, I pray that You would, by the power of Your Holy Spirit, help us to to receive Your Word, to, to hear Your Word, to understand Your Word, to apply Your Word, to be doers of Your Word, not hearers only. Father, may Your will be done today. May Christ be glorified today. In Jesus' name, Amen. So escaping the wrath to come, escaping from the wrath to come is the title of the message. The wrath to come. Not a popular topic. Not a a topic that many churches would ever even address. Um, some, Some religions were formed because of this very thing. The Jehovah's Witness, for example... Their leader, uh, Charles Russell, I believe is his name, he was a part of a Protestant church growing up, but he, as a, as, a, as a teenager, he didn't like the doctrine of hell. So he started his own group, which is now the Jehovah's Witness. Uh, but this topic is in the Bible. But it's not only the cults. You know, most of the cults, they'll, have, they'll either flat out deny hell or they'll have some strange teaching where you can escape it through purgatory or whatever the case may be. But it's not just the cults. Uh, I think I think many uh, seeker-sensitive churches nowadays. This is not a popular topic. The doctrine of hell, the doctrine of the wrath to come. Um, but you know, when we think about this topic, the wrath to come, it was Christ who preached on this topic more than everybody else in the Bible. He preached on the wrath to come. Should we not model ourselves after Christ? I mean, should should this not be a major motivation in biblical preaching? Preaching on the wrath to come, right? We're warning sinners of this real thing called the wrath to come that John the Baptist is speaking about today. There's a certain eschatological mindset, 
a certain um, eschatology that I've heard a, I've heard an individual say this. So it's the teaching that that the world is going to get better. That you're going to that we're going to preach the gospel and we're going to Christianize the world. And so, which I don't agree with, but I heard an individual. I heard more than one individual who who holds this view say, "Well, now I've got a motivation to evangelize." I'm sorry. But my motivation to evangelize is not to, so we can Christianize this world. Obviously, we want to see people saved, but I want to see people rescued from the wrath to come. I mean, if you're not motivated to reach out to the lost, to see them escape the wrath of God, if that's not your, at least part of your motivation, to have compassion upon those who are headed towards a eternity, to have the wrath of God poured, about, poured out upon them, I'd question you. I really would. That's, that bothers me every time I hear that. Well, now we've got a motivation to evangelize. It, it just seems selfish to me. I want to see sinners escape the wrath of God. That's what John the Baptist. It's obviously what he wanted. It's what Christ wanted. I didn't see Christ preaching the gospel to Christianize the world, but I seen him warning sinners to flee from the wrath of God. So the question is, is why preach on it, right? Well, if you practice expository preaching, which we do, that just means preaching verse by verse through the Scriptures, <laughs> you preach whatever's in front of you. And today, it's the wrath to come. And, so, and also, we preach on it because it's real and it's coming. Because we love the lost. So we preach it. We preach it behind the pulpit. We preach it on the streets. We preach it to our family, to our friends. I would definitely hope, beloved, that you would always include the wrath of God in a gospel presentation in some form because that's what we need to warn sinners of, the wrath to come. The wrath of God is real. The wrath of God is real. It's coming. And we need real preachers to preach it. Amen. I mean, real preachers preach on the wrath of God. You're not worried about, you're not worried about the size of, of your church. You, you, you want to you preach the wrath of God of God when you come across it in the text, especially. So John John was a real preacher, John the Baptist. If we remember, uh, we've talked about how God called him great. He was great, right? He had a great privilege. He was a humble man, but he also, he spoke plainly to the people. That's one of the things that made him great. So look at verse 7 here. Kind of by way of introduction, we're going to look at verse 7. So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. To really get a really have a better understanding of this what's going on here, we need to look at Matthew's account. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. It's the same account, but we can get a little more clarity in Matthew's gospel. So Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Starting in verse 7, and then we'll read the rest of it. If you'll notice in Matthew's Gospel, first of all, if you'll notice in Luke, it says, so he began saying to the crowds, you brood of vipers. But Matthew specifies who he's really talking to here. Matthew 3, verse 7, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Now let me read Matthew 3, 1-7 through and make a few comments. And then we'll go back over to Luke. Matthew 3, verse 1, In those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is one referred to 
by Isaiah the prophet when he said, "The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the path, or make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight." Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan, and they. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw the, many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So we can see, by looking at Matthew's Gospel, we can see, first of all, that, that the people were coming out to him, right? He was preaching repentance. They were being baptized. But we can see this comment, as far as, as, far as this phrase, You brood of vipers... He was specifically using this language for the Pharisees and the Sadducees when he, seen, when he saw them coming. So it's just good to have that context. But having said that, we know... Um, actually, I'll get to that here in just a minute, so I'm going to hold that thought. But he uses this phrase, you brood of vipers, back in Luke. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? A viper was a small, poisonous desert snake. Again... You know who else used this language? Jesus Christ, right? He called these same men, you snakes, you brood of vipers. A brood just means, the word brood, beloved, means offspring. That's what it means. So he's not just calling them snakes. He's saying, you offspring of vipers. You offspring of vipers. You offspring of serpents. Does that, does that language ring a bell with you? You think all the way back to Genesis 3.15 when he says the seed of the serpent. The seed of the serpent, beloved, that's specifically unbelievers. And so he's calling these men, you seed of the serpent. You seed of your father. You brood. You're offspring of your father. That's what he's saying. You children of the devil. Do you remember what he told the Pharisees in John chapter 8? His discussion with the religious leaders in John chapter 8. That's exactly what he said in John 8, 44. You know, they were claiming Abraham was our father. He said, no, your father's the devil. And so that's what he's saying here. You brood of vipers. This, again, this is part of John's greatness, beloved. This is not popular preaching for most churches here and, and where we live. I can promise you. This is John the Baptist displaying his greatness in the eyes of God. He's a man of God. He speaks the truth of God. He speaks plainly. You know, that's a characteristic of a false teacher. It's always cloudy. <laughs> it's never just plain. You think of, um, you know, I think of a, a man like Joel Osteen. And, and you, can, you can see an old interview where, where Larry King interviewed him. Asked him a very simple question. Is Jesus the only way? <laughs> so you're saying, you're saying, Muslims, and he named different groups, are not going to heaven if they don't believe in Jesus. And I remember, the, the, right? Joel Osteen, he's called America's pastor. And he waffled around, well, I, that's not for me to say. No, if you're a preacher, it is for you to say. John MacArthur was asked the exact same thing by the same man, Larry King. He said, absolutely, Jesus is the only way. If you don't come through Christ, you're going to go to hell. Plain. That's what John the Baptist is saying here. John the Baptist is calling out hypocrisy of, of these false teachers. We read about false teachers in 2 Peter a while ago. They're, they're, they're hypocrites. Obviously, there's false teachers of all, all flavors. 
But that's what these Pharisees are, these Sadducees. And he's calling them out. And then he says, who warned you to flee? Still in verse 7. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? It says in verse 7, many of the Pharisees and Sadducees were coming to him for baptism. And he asked this question, who warned you to flee? You know what it's like, beloved? You ever, you ever had a brush fire? I had a brush fire yesterday. <laughs> and uh, have you ever, you ever started a brush fire and you see maybe some snakes that are in there and they slither their way out to get away from the fire? That's the kind of language he's using. Who warned you to flee from the wrath of God, you snakes? Are you coming here just to try to slither into the Jordan for baptism? You think you're going to escape the wrath of God? That's what these are. That's what these men are. They're slithery snakes. I don't think many of them actually ended up being baptized. You can see in Luke, you don't need to turn there, but Luke 7 verse 30 says this, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. So I don't think many of them were. I'm sure some of them were. But his question remains, who warned you? Who warned you to flee from the wrath of God? Can you see John the Baptist? You guys get your bulletin? You see the picture my wife put on the front of it? I love that picture. You see John the Baptist standing there? So the bulletins are in the back, Joshua. I didn't know if you knew that, but there's bulletins in there. But you see John the Baptist, right? He's standing there in front of the people. They're in that, they're in that uh, box on the left there. So there's a bulletin and there's an outline on the back. So anyway, I didn't know if you'd known that. But, but yeah, that's the, that, that's the picture, right? The question remains. Who warned you to flee from the wrath of God? Don't, in other words, don't think you can hide from God's wrath with your hypocritical religion. You're not going to escape God's wrath. You're not going to be able to flee God's wrath with your hypocritical, self-righteous, works-based religion. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? What have you heard? Who, ha- who has told you? Have you? Has somebody told you about the wrath of God? What have you heard that would cause you to fear the wrath of God? That's what John's saying. All of these thoughts. When you think about who he's speaking to, the Sadducees and the, and the Pharisees, who warns you, Sadducees, to flee from the wrath of God? You don't even believe in a literal resurrection or a literal hell. Why are you here? In other words, who warns you, Pharisee? You think you're too good to be damned. There's many people in our culture that believe these same things. They deny the resurrection of Christ. They deny the reality of hell. They deny... The need for a Savior. Nothing new under the sun. Right? So that's why we need real preachers warning of the real wrath to come. So in Luke 3, 7, He is calling out. John the Baptist is calling out and rebuking the false teachers. Okay? So remember remember Matthew's account. There's, there's crowds. But He's specifically asking this question to these religious hypocrites. He's calling out and rebuking the false teachers, but listen to this, but the multitude as well. He's speaking to these men, but there's crowds out there who hear as well, and He knows they need to hear it. You know what I see here in John the Baptist? I see a great open-air preacher. That's what I see. A great open-air preacher. Many times you'll be preaching in the open air, and you'll have somebody that wants to dialogue, which is a good thing, right? 
your dialogue, but maybe sometimes, like, maybe if you're using an amplification, amplification they'll say, hey, turn that amp off. Uh-uh. No, because what I'm telling you, everybody else needs to hear. That's what I see with John the Baptist here. He's speaking to the, to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but within the multitude of other people. Obviously, John the Baptist was a great open-air preacher because he knew that all needed to hear this. All needed to hear this message. The people needed to hear John's rebuke of these false systems. That's always a good thing when you can correct false teaching within the, within the ears of many people who can hear it. That's why we would go preach to the Hebrew Israelites and huge crowds would gather around. And they'd hear the truth compared to these lies. And that's what John the Baptist was doing. Obviously, he was calling the, the multitude to repentance. But he was also correcting these liars. And the people, needed, the people needed these warnings, right? We're all sinners. We're all sinners. He warned you to flee from the wrath to come. There's wrath to come. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So that's the setting. He's speaking to the crowd, specifically to these men. Because you have to remember, beloved, these false teachers were not the only ones, again, who were children of the devil. Okay? It's not just these people. All of those who are still in Adam, all of those who are still in their sins, the Bible says you're a child of the devil. That's what 1 John 3, 9 and 10 says. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Verse 10, it says, By this, by this is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Very clear. Doesn't matter what your profession of faith is, if your lifestyle is not one that practices righteousness and has a love for other Christians, the Bible says you're a child of the devil. You need to be adopted into the family of God. So he understands that. He's speaking to the multitudes. You know, we need men like John. If we had men like John preaching these type of messages, churches wouldn't be so big. I think churches are too big. And what do I mean by that? Obviously, we want to see the true church grow. Obviously. But I think churches are... I think, I think if, you, if you get a... If more men would preach like John the Baptist, just simply meaning preaching the text. See, when you preach through, the, when you preach through verse by verse, you can't avoid texts like this. <laughs> that's, that's the, that's the, it's, it's called a well-rounded diet for the sheep. It's not just like, well, what topic do I want to preach today? Today I want to preach on love. Next week I want to preach on love. I'm going to preach on a happy life. <laughs> it's okay to preach topics from time to time. But I want you guys, your primary diet, to be verse by verse. Because you're going to get all of it. You can't avoid it. If we, need, if we had more men preaching these type of messages, more goats would flee the churches. And the churches would be purified. And the sheep, it would be made clear who the sheep are. That's, why we, that's, why, that's one reason. Not, you know, I don't want to speak... Just because a church is big does not, does not necessarily mean it's full of goats. But in our culture, in our culture, these type of messages are avoided 
Because they want to keep the people in the seats. They want to keep the money coming. That's just the truth. That is the truth. And so, but we want to preach the wrath of God because in the end, beloved, this is what's coming. In the end, real preachers with real backbones, with real love in their hearts for the people want to preach the truth. So praise God for John the Baptist. Praise God for the Word of God. It's very clear. It's very plain. So how can I escape the wrath to come? That's the question. The title of the message is Escaping from the Wrath of God. Right? By way of application. (laughs) How can I escape the wrath to come? I think we all know the answer. Jesus Christ. But let's look at John the Baptist, what he says in these passages. Because there's a lot of people who could give that answer. But they have not escaped the wrath of God. How can I escape the wrath of God? We're going to look at three things today. The first one, in in the second part of verse 8, being family or familiar is not enough. You're going, what? Being family or familiar is not enough to escape the wrath. In John 8, verse B, we'll we'll come back to the first part of the verse. It says, therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance. So we'll come back to that. He says, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. So being family or familiar is not enough. So these men, or so John is saying, hey, don't say to yourselves, hey, we're, Abraham's our father. That's not enough to escape the wrath of God. Okay? In the, in the context that they're saying it. Again, in John chapter 8, Jesus' conversation with these These same religious leaders in verse 33 and verse 39, they said the same thing. He's saying, because He was saying, you're you're a slave to sin. That's what Jesus was saying. You're a slave to sin. And they said, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been enslaved to anyone. You know, when you read that, you're like, weren't you in Egypt for a while? (laughs) But they said, we are Abraham's descendants. We've never been enslaved to anyone. Abraham is our father. Right? That's what they're claiming. We're good. Abraham's our father. We're Israelites. Well, I guess not necessarily at that time. <laughs> we weren't called Israel yet. But If you are Abraham's children, Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. That just means Abraham was a man of faith. He believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. And then he obeyed God. I'm so thankful, again, I think I said this last week, I'm so thankful for the New Testament. The New Testament, many times, it gives commentary on the old. It clarifies things. It's a beautiful thing. In in Galatians chapter 3, in verse 7 and verse 29, Paul clarifies who are the true children of Abraham in God's eyes. Okay? So if you're going to say you're a child of Abraham, mean it in this way, beloved. In Galatians 3, verse 7, he says, Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Those who are of faith. And then in verse 29, And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Now, if you want to say you're a child of Abraham because of your faith in Jesus Christ, then amen. But just physically, bloodline, being a child of Abraham will not help you on the day of judgment. 
And that's, just, that's what these men, that's what the very group we're studying about right now and equipping our, that's what they failed to understand, even if they were the children of Abraham. It doesn't help you. You need to be a spiritual son or daughter of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. And so it says in verse 8, Do not begin to say to yourself, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these very stones, no doubt he was looking down at the ground, from these very stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. You know what? He made Adam from dirt, did he not? (laughs) He made Adam from dirt. And he could make children of Abraham out out of stones. And you know, guys, in a sense, he did just that. I love the the play on words here. And I don't know if John had that in his mind. But if you think about the new covenant, if you think about conversion, what does it say in Ezekiel? If you remember Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 26, it's a picture of the new covenant. It says, moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Born again. That's born again language. So in a sense, He does, he does make us out of a, from a stone. He takes that stony heart that we had, that dead heart, and he, and he rips it out and He gives us a new heart. A heart that beats for Christ. That's what it means to be born again. It's that new heart language. So what would the, what would the arguments be in our day? Right? Now, we still hear that. Hey, I'm a, I'm a child of Abraham. Abraham's our father. I'm a Jew. I'm an Israelite. Da, 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 da. What are we going to hear a lot of in our culture though? My dad's a preacher. You right with God? Yes, my dad's a preacher. Amen. I, my dad's a preacher. So what? Your dad's a preacher. My parents are Christian. You see, what that, and that's what point number one means. Being, being family or familiar with the truth, all of these type of things, it's not enough. It's not enough to escape the wrath of God that your dad's a preacher. Or that your parents are Christian. I grew up in a Christian home. I have people say that all the time. Hey, you're right with God. Yes, I grew up in a Christian home. I'm a Baptist. So what? I'm a Presbyterian. I'm a Methodist. I'm a Pentecostal. I'm da-da-da-da-da. You don't escape the wrath of God through any of these things. I'm a Sunday school teacher. You even hear that? I'm a preacher. I've had people tell me that. We know on the day of judgment there's going to be preachers go to hell. Talked about that last week. Says so in Matthew 7. Lord, we prophesied in Your name. Depart from me. I never knew You. I've had people tell me that I'm a preacher. And then you listen to them talk. And they, they just proceed to blaspheme God. Use all kinds of profanity. And then, and then it's like, what are you preaching? I mean, it's like, Beliefs all they're out there in left field. Being a preacher doesn't deliver you from the wrath of God. I had an experience. You hear that a lot. I had an experience. And and, and I was baptized. All of these things. I, I said the sinner's prayer. Hey, I said the sinner's prayer at the age of 14. I repeated the words that the guy told me, and I continued to live like an absolute devil until I was truly born again. Eight years later. I pray. You hear that one a lot. I pray. Good for you. God healed me. Heard that a lot lately. God healed me. I must be right with God because God healed me. No, God is a merciful God. 
That's all I can say. It's not your time yet. <laughs> he gave me a job. I hear that a lot. Well, I got a job. I must be right with God. Hey, praise God that He gives us, that the Lord is the one who gives us the ability to earn wealth. And He provides. It says He, 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 he it's, it's, it's God's common grace, right? It rains on the just and the unjust. The ungodly enjoy many of the blessings of God. Good food, air to breathe. It doesn't mean you're right with God. No, none of these things. Or you could add many more. None of these things is enough. The question is, is are you born again? Are you born again? The answer needs to be, you know what? My dad's a preacher, but I was in darkness. But God saved me. I grew up in a Christian home, but I lived in all kinds of darkness and filth and rebellion towards God, but now I'm in the light. You see the difference? Man, I was a religious hypocrite sitting in a Baptist church or a Pentecostal church or whatever the church is, but I was dead in my sin until God called me. And now I'm born again. I was even teaching a Sunday school class as a lost man, but God saved me. That's how I know I'm right with God. God is light, beloved, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. doesn't matter if you're a preacher or a preacher's wife or a preacher's son. If you have not been born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. So that's the first point. Just being familiar with Christianity, being in a certain bloodline is not enough. You must be born again. Secondly, in verses 9 and 10, how can I escape the wrath to come? Be fearful of judgment. Be fearful of judgment in verses 9 and 10. He said this in verse 9, Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the tree, so every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What is this language about this axe being laid at the root of the trees, beloved? It's very simple. Judgment is imminent. That's what it is. Judgment is imminent. It's, it's, it's not the phrase of... Um, it's, it's, again, that the blade, it's at the root of the tree. It's about to happen. The fruitless tree is about to be chopped down and thrown into the fire. It's imminent. It's not the language of, well, let me, let me get the axe out of the, of the shop and start chopping when I fill up to it. No. No, this judgment is imminent. The axe is already at the root of the tree. It's already there. It's about to happen. We have a chicken coop and we have snakes that get into it this time of year. Just killed the first one a few nights ago. The snake slayer. My wife. But we have an axe. We learned after we had chickens for all. We have an axe right there at the door. So when you open the coop at night to check on the chickens and there's a snake right there with an egg in his mouth and we have a pair of tongs, we grab him out and bam, cut his head off. <laughs> the axe is ready. <laughs> Judgment is coming upon the serpent. <laughs> but that's the language here. We have that axe ready. We don't have to go, oh, there's a snake. I need to, because that's what we used to do. We learned. I got to run to the garage and I got to find a shovel. I got to find this. You get out there and the snake's gone. No, judgment's coming. Do you want to come get our eggs? You're going to face the axe. 
Put that on Facebook a year ago, and we had all kinds of wackos coming after us. You guys remember that? I don't know. We had like over 100 comments saying we were just ungodly for killing that snake. My wife had like a five-foot snake holding it right here. Amen. Amen. That's right. Crush the serpent's head. Or cut them off. No, but these... Um, But these dead, in John's picture, these dead worthless trees, beloved, they're cut down. If they don't bear fruit, they're cut down. Where do they go when they're cut down? Into the burn, into the fire. Into the fire. We also have a burn pile. And and, and we've had different fruit trees planted in in our yard. And it's like, we have one out there that's dead. I was out there working yesterday with this message on my mind going, little fruit tree about my height, and it's just dead. It needs to be cut down and thrown into the fire. It's worthless. That's the picture here. If it's dead and fruitless, burn it. Listen to Matthew Henry here. Matthew Henry just has a way of saying things. He says this, and he's talking about the tree here. If it serve, if it serve not for fruit to the honor of God's grace, let it serve for fuel to the honor of His justice. You know, if it's not going to produce fruit, let it be fuel for the fire. And that's a fruitless tree in God's economy. You're going to be thrown into the fire. This is serious language. He says every tree, not just some, every tree in verse 9 that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Do you hear this? Every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Not a brush fire that's going to go out in a matter of hours, but an eternal fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It's speaking to individual souls, but also national. When a a nation as a whole rebels, this may have been in John's thinking, speaking to these religious leaders, prophesying what would happen roughly 40 years later in A.D. 70. The Jews that rejected the Messiah. The acts of divine judgment fell upon Israel in A.D. 70. Millions were slaughtered. So he very well probably had all of this in his mind. By the way, beloved, this type of judgment is reserved for the entire earth. In Zephaniah 3.8, Indeed, the Lord says, My decision is to gather the nations and to assemble kingdoms to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. Judgment's coming to this world. This world that shakes its fist at God. Judgment is coming indeed. Beloved, judgment is more certain than death. You know, we say things when we're, when we're, when we're preaching the Gospel. We say, two things guaranteed in life. It's not death and taxes. We say it's death and judgment. But even that phrase is not fully accurate. Because there will be some who don't die a physical death. But you won't escape judgment. If you happen to be here when Christ returns, then yeah, you may escape physical death, but you will not escape the judgment of God. That is the one thing that no person will escape. You won't escape judgment. It's imminent. It's imminent. John's saying it's, it's imminent. It's soon. And so what does that tell us, beloved? Behold, now is the day of salvation. That's the message, right? 
It's never get right with God when you feel like it. Behold, tomorrow's the day. Seek the Lord if you feel like it. No, it's seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. The day may bring judgment. The day may bring your death. So that's the point of this. Judgment's imminent. Get right. Judgment's imminent. Repent. That was His message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in verse 10, And the crowds were questioning Him, saying, Then what shall we do? Point number two is be fearful of judgment. You can see the crowds. You can see His message having an impact on them. He is producing fear in them. Healthy fear, right? What should we do? You know, anybody anybody with a right mind, when you hear of such a judgment language, you're going to go, what shall we do to escape this judgment? And so the threat of imminent, imminent and sure judgment should cause fear and trepidation. What shall we do? This is the proper question. This is the proper question for those who are under conviction of their sins. This is, a, this is the great question. You remember the Philippian jailer, right? Paul and Silas were in jail. You know, we don't get the whole account, but no doubt they were chained to him, if I'm not mistaken. But no doubt they were preaching the Word of God to this guy. And he cries out, What shall I do to be saved? It's a great question. I've had a few people ask that question over the years. What a blessing it is when you're preaching the Word of God and, and somebody comes up with a question similar to that. What can I do? I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to come under the wrath of God. Turn to Christ. It's also a proper question for someone with a, with a new heart. So, so somebody who, who they have been born again. You want to do the will of God. What shall I do? What's next? That's what, that's what Paul asked the Lord. That's what Paul asked Christ when he was converted on the road to Damascus. You, you, you can read about his testimony in Acts chapter 9, but also in Acts chapter 22. And that's one of the first questions he, he asked. What shall I do, Lord? What shall I do? That's the heart of a true Christian. Somebody who has been given this, granted this repentance and given this new heart. You want to please God. That's a true Christian. What do you want me to do, Lord? Genuine, genuine repentance will produce a desire to do God's will. Right? What did Jesus say in Luke 6.46? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and what? You don't do what I tell you. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, He will enter. And this is what He's going to get into. These fruits of repentance. Oh, beloved, have you truly understood what your sins deserve? It deserves the wrath of God. That's what our sins deserve. We're no better than the Pharisees. No better than the Sadducees. We all deserve the wrath of God. We all need to be born again. We all need to be adopted into His family. And so be fearful, beloved, as we're really... The, the heart of this message is we're going to see this, this fruits of repentance... Be weary. Be fearful of an empty profession of faith. An empty profession of faith 
Those who have a profession of faith and nothing else, no evidence of genuine conversion will be cast into hell. So I would plead with you. That was me for years and years. And I praise God for waking me up out of that stupor. Flee to Christ. Flee to Christ. And that's his third point. Bear fruits of repentance. How can I escape the wrath to come? Beloved, this is coming straight out of the Word of God. This is straight out of the Word of God. How can I escape the wrath to come? Bear fruits of repentance. So he he said at the end of verse 7, Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Again, he was speaking to the Pharisees and Sadducees, but not just them. He's speaking to all who are lost. He's speaking to all in our day, right? Through the Word of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Bear fruits. This is not, this is not works-based salvation. No. It's, it's, it's fruit as evidence of conversion. So the third point, the third and last point, bear fruits of repentance. Bear fruits. That phrase, beloved, it's a continual... It's the idea of a continual habit, not a single act. It's a lifestyle. It's a changed life. It's what it is. It's a changed life. How do you know if you're truly converted and safe from the wrath of God? Is it because you prayed a prayer one time at one point in your life? No, that's not what the Bible says. But that's what we've made it. I prayed a prayer one time in my life at church camp. And I was pronounced saved at the age of six. And that's what multitudes in our culture are basing their salvation on. No, biblical repentance will produce fruit as evidence of genuine conversion. That's the James chapter 2 argument. You see, the, 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 the cults, they, they, they always want to say when, you, when you're preaching salvation by grace through faith, they say, James 2! Every one of them. The Mormons would say, turn to James 2. Catholics, James 2. The Hebrew Israelites, James 2. Because they totally, totally take it out of context. James is not teaching. He's not comparing salvation by faith as compared to salvation by works. No, what he's teaching is that there's a certain kind of faith that is saving faith that will produce good works. That's that's his whole argument. It's the same argument that John's making. And we'll look at James a couple times. But James 2.17, he says, So faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Beloved, it's dead faith. It's like a dead tree. That's what it is. That's James' argument. His argument is the exact same as John the Baptist. It's dead faith which produces no fruit. Just like a dead tree produces no fruit. James's language, instead of fruits of repentance, it's good works. It's just different language talking about the same thing. Genuine saving faith produces fruits of good works. That's James's language. Genuine saving faith produces the fruit of good works. Genuine God granted repentance produces fruits. In keeping with repentance, that's John's language. But it's the same argument. It's the exact same argument. Beloved, 
When we talk about repentance, the actions themselves, right? The actions themselves is not repentance, but the fruits of repentance. Okay? Repentance is a work that God does in our heart. What John is talking about, we're going to look at some examples. These are the fruits, the demonstration of genuine repentance. The good works in James's argument are a demonstration of genuine faith. Faith and repentance always go together. It's the fruits of the work that what? God has begun in you. That's why Brother Paul Washer says, rightly so. The evidence that you have truly repented and truly believed is that you will continue to repent. Continue to believe because it's a work that God started and He will complete it to the end. And I forget what group of people, I meant to write this down. What group of people in church history, I can't remember um, if they were... Anyway, what group of believers, but they called them... It may have been some of the Irish believers, brother. They called them the repenters. That's what they were known as. The repenters. That's how the, that's how the ungodly world described them. The repenters. That's, a, that's what we should be described as. Man, I know Joshua. That's one of them repenters. But that should describe the Christian. We are repenters. So let's look at a few examples. That's what John gives us real briefly. Verses 11-14. through 14, Bear fruits of repentance. Verse 11, And he would answer and say to them, when they said, what should we do? He would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. Okay, before we look at what this is, real quickly, because people twist this, what this is not is a redistribution program or a welfare state. John is not saying... Take from the rich, give to the poor. That's not what this is. Because there will be those people who believe in the social gospel, they'll come, they'll come across, and others, they'll twist God's word. No, this is voluntary compassion. This is fruits of conversion. Did you know a Christian should be a compassionate person? A Christian should be a generous person. That's all he's saying. A fruit of conversion is compassion. I don't mean to put Joshua on the spot. But he, he, he's demonstrated that a couple times at the bus station. Be talking to a guy, and, I, and I've seen him take a guy across the street, get him a hot dog. Nothing big, but he's just showing compassion to the guy. That's what a Christian does. Man, if I've got a means to buy this guy a hamburger, I can talk to him about Jesus, then praise the Lord. That should describe us. We should be compassionate people. That's John's only point here. He's just giving examples. He's not saying, man, you're going, to be, um, you're going to be saved if you let somebody borrow your shirt. No, that's not what he's saying. It's just an example. He's just giving an example. Right? I mean, you're, it's freezing cold outside and you've got like three layers on and you see somebody freezing, hopefully we'd be generous enough to say, hey man, give us something to help you out. That's all he's saying. It's a fruit of repentance. Matthew 5.7 Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Do you think Jesus is teaching that? If you'll be merciful to, if you'll be merciful to people, then you'll earn salvation, and I'll be merciful to you. No. He's saying those who have been received the mercy of God are going to extend that mercy to others. That's all he's saying. Now turn over to James 
real quickly. I want to look at James real quickly. Because here's our illustration for this point. James 2, 14 through 19. He's making the exact same point. James 2, 14 through 19. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Again, he's not comparing faith and works. He's comparing dead faith to saving faith. If a brother or sister was without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. But someone may well say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. You know what he's saying, guys? It's real simple. We could even use the words. If you don't want to use the word works, it's like, hey, you say you're a Christian just because you say, I believe. You know what? I can show you that I'm a Christian because my lifestyle has changed. I've been born again. I'm no longer a practicing fornicator or a habitual liar or a thief. I now am able to love people. You see see what I'm saying? So whether you want to say fruits of repentance, whether you want to say good works, whether you want to say a new life, new affections, new desires, it's a new life. Genuine repentance and faith produces fruit as evidence of spiritual life. Right? Amen? Amen. Alright, verse 12 and 13, he moves on to a second example. The tax collectors. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized. And they said to him, Now see, these are different groups of people that are under conviction. Right? His message was having an impact. And they're saying, Teacher, what shall we do? Because you, no doubt there were many people being, out, being baptized out here with false pretenses, hypocritically. But these are some examples. Of they, they came to be baptized. They said, What shall we do? In verses 12 and 13, or verse 13, he said to them, very, very simple, collect no more than what you've been ordered to. That was his answer. Tax collectors, these were Jews. So it helps to understand who a tax collector is. These were Jews who collected taxes from the Jews for the Romans. They were considered as traitors. Rightly so, that would seem that way. They were considered as traitors and hated by the Jews. But this is the, this is the thing about it. As if that wasn't bad enough in the eyes of Jews, they would normally increase their personal profit through extortion. In other words, they would collect, what did Jesus say, verse 13? Collect no more than what you have been ordered to collect. They would collect more than they were ordered to collect by the Romans. They would collect they would collect more. They, would, they were frauds is what they were. Tax collectors were frauds. They were thieves. They were liars. To use our vernacular, they put the screws to people. That's what they did. One of the commentators said, I think it's Matthew Henry. If you want to know what a tax collector is, they were the kind of people who put the screws to people. Right? To, to, to fill their pockets. And then what does he say? What do they say? What should we do? You notice Jesus doesn't say find a new job. Right? Collecting taxes is not the point. That's not the, that's not the sin here. It's the greed. It's the deceit. Right? We're to render unto Caesar's. What's Caesar's? 
So he didn't say, you need to find a new job. No, he just said, do what's right and honest. And somebody who's truly repented will we'll have a, there will be fruits of repentance. We've got, we got a great illustration for this one as well. Luke 19. The little short man, Zacchaeus. Luke 19, 8-10. You remember this is the guy who climbed up in the sycamore tree. He was short. He couldn't see. So I've got to climb up in this tree to see Christ. Oh, it's a beautiful picture, guys. This is the illustration that fits. Luke 19, 8-10. 19, 8-10. He was a tax collector and he says this. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded, there's that word, if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And what does Jesus say because of this response? Today salvation has come to this house. Right? The fruit of repentance is obvious. Oh, we have a live one here. This man's born again. Beautiful. Today, salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. And then, of course, the, the verse. You really want to know the, the, the theme of the book of Luke? Here it is. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Another one has been saved. Another wicked tax collector. He's been saved by the grace of God. And he's bearing fruits in keeping with repentance. Just like John's saying. And then verse 14, our last example. And some soldiers were questioning him, saying, and what about us, right? Can you see this? All these different groups of people. What about us? What about us, John? What shall we do? And he said to them, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. These soldiers asked him this question, what about us? We don't know if these are Roman soldiers or Jewish soldiers, maybe both. But what should we do? You notice one thing he doesn't say? Stop being a soldier. Didn't you know that being in the military is a sin? It's not what he said. Didn't you know being a police officer is a sin? It's not what he said. There's something called just wars, beloved. Okay? So that, that, that deals with that argument. No, what does he say? Do what's right. Do what's right. That verse I quoted a few minutes ago, John, 1 John 3.10, anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, John says. What does it mean to practice righteousness? To do what's right. To do what's right by who? By God. That's how we define right and wrong, God's, God's Word. He's saying do what's right. And in their case, he says... Do not take money from anyone by force. You know what? They said, I forget what commentator I was reading. Soldiers may well have assisted the tax collectors in bullying people by intimidation to collect money for themselves. But whether they were associated with the tax collectors or not, that's what this means. They would use their position, they would use their position as a soldier to, by, to intimidate people. To fill their pockets. Or, don't, or, or then he says, don't accuse, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely. Don't abuse your authority to twist the evidence to extort money from the innocent. 
Just, 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 again, just, uh, just deceitful. You know, all of these, if you look at these examples, verses 11 through 14, they all have to do in some way with money or material goods, if you notice. All of these fruits of repentance have to do with dealing with material goods, whether it be our, our shirts off our back, the tax collector, the soldiers. It really reminds me of the verse in 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money, what does it say? It say money? The love of money. The love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. One of the things when you're converted, your whole viewpoint of money changes. Greed, covetousness, all these things. All of these have to do with money or material wealth in some, in some form or fashion. No one can serve God and money. I used to serve money. I was never, never had a lot. <laughs> but I served it. It was mine. Mine. My material possessions were mine. They weren't God's. They were mine. But something changes. Something changes when you begin to follow Christ. And so we have to make the point that a key indicator that reveals our true priorities and our spiritual health is our budget. How do we spend our money? That, that, that tells us where we're at spiritually. Are we generous with our money? Are we generous with our money? And then the lastly, he says, be content. Be content with your wages. You know, contentment, guys, that is a fruit of conversion. And we're all, we're never there fully, right? We, we, we wrestle with that. But you think of the world, beloved, the world's never content. Think about the people of the world in your life. When I say the people of the world, they're unconverted. Most of the time, I'm sure there's exceptions. They're not content. Why is that, bud? Because stuff can't satisfy us. It can't. Stuff is not meant to satisfy us. Only Christ can satisfy. You were created for Christ. Did you know that? In Colossians 1.16, it says all things were created by Him and for Him. We were created to worship Christ. And so somebody who's trying to find satisfaction through material goods or any other way, they're never going to find it. They're never going to be content because we were created for so much more. We were created to worship Christ. We were made for Him. These are just examples, beloved. These are just a few examples of fruits of repentance. We can think of many more. And so the point is, the point John is making, the point James is making, but the point John is making here is these fruits that he says bear fruits in keeping with repentance, they will accompany genuine salvation. He's saying if you want to escape the wrath of God, you had better be bearing fruit. Or in the end, you're going to be like that tree that is fruitless, that is dead. Still dead in your sins. And it's going to be chopped down and reserved for the fire. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 11 I think is such a beautiful example of this. When Paul says, 
don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. He just he's mentioning lifestyles, right? He didn't mention all of them, but several sinful lifestyles. He said, will not enter the kingdom of heaven. But what did he say to the Corinthians? Such were some of you. I could say this too. Such were some of you. Do you hear that word? Were. But you're not anymore. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. What's he saying? You have repented and you believe and you're not those things anymore. You were the tax collector who who was a fraud and a thief, but you're not anymore, Zacchaeus. You were the soldier who, who abused your authority through intimidation to fill your pockets, but you're not anymore. Because now you're bearing fruit of repentance and generosity and love and concern for others. And so in closing... I want to turn back over to Ezekiel real quickly. If you, you can turn there too. I want you to see it. Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel is right before Daniel. Ezekiel 36. I'm going to read the verse that we looked at earlier, but I'm going to read the next one too in closing. This is a picture of the new birth. 36, verse 26 and 27. Moreover, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27. I will put My Spirit within you and cause you to walk in My statutes and you will be careful to observe My ordinances. Do you hear that, beloved? He gives us a new heart. He puts His Spirit within us. And so this new birth will produce obedience. It will produce fruit. It will produce good works. You see it? Because it's a work of God. And so for somebody to claim, yes, I believe in Jesus, but no evidence, no fruit. This is a warning from the Scriptures. To repent. To truly turn to Christ. So the question we have, how can I escape the wrath to come? That's the question. Repent and believe the Gospel. Repent. Turn from your sin and truly turn to Christ with your life. Yield yield to Him as Lord, as King. And when you repent and you truly turn to, turn to Jesus Christ and surrender your life to Him, this will begin to result in fruits of repentance in your life. And good works, which Paul says, God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much, Lord, for the the clarity of Your Word. Father, we thank You, Lord, for not only saving us, not only forgiving us for our sins, God, but again, You've given us a new heart, new affections, new desires. 
You have given us Your Spirit. You have placed Your Spirit in us. As Ezekiel says, You've placed Your Holy Spirit in us that will cause us to walk in Your statutes and help us to observe Your ordinances, God, that will produce obedience in us. And so, Father, we thank You for this, God. I just pray... Lord, that there, if there be any here, if there be any who would hear this message, Lord, just like I was for so many years of my life, Father, thinking I was converted, but producing no fruit whatsoever. Father, I pray that Your Spirit would bring conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment. I pray that You would grant repentance and saving faith, God. I pray that You would have mercy upon sinners, Lord. I pray that, that many would come to repentance and faith in Christ, Lord, and escape the wrath of God. Thank You for providing the way of escape. The writer of Hebrews says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Lord, the answer is we won't. You have provided the one and only salvation from sin, from the wrath of God, from Your eternal wrath, and that is through Your Son. So Father, we thank You for Him. We praise You in Christ's name. Amen.